What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room and part two of my interview with Bobby Osteen. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Before we start, I'd like to mention a small issue that we've had with iTunes. We were accidentally bounced off their servers back in February. We're working closely with the iTunes engineers to get this fixed, and it should be fixed within the next week or two. But in the meantime, please bear with us. Now, back to the show. In this episode, Bobby and I talk about her newest book, The Invisible Cut. This book is very different from other editing books, in that in the first half, it focuses on techniques and various situations in which you'll use these techniques. In the second half, it focuses on analyzing classic scenes from various films. If you're new to film editing, read this book. You can purchase a copy or find out where to purchase a copy by going to Bobby Osteen's website, which is www.bobbyosteen.com. But for now, back to my interview with Bobby Osteen. When Sam started cutting The Graduate, you mentioned that his work stood out and was seen as innovative. Uh, looking back over Sam's career, what did Sam's editing do for film, and how did it change film? One of the things that was unique about Sam was that he sat on the set with mm-hmm. the director. Editors didn't do that. I don't know of any editor who, who did that throughout. In his 30 years of working with Mike Nichols, he was always on the set. One of the reasons why was because he was so fast. Mm-hmm. He was an incredibly fast editor. He's very decisive um, as part of his personality. And I, I guess you read, I thought one of the dramatic things about Sam's process is that he never looked at anything he cut after mm-hmm. he cut it. He just uh, ran it for the director without even looking at it, unless there was a sync problem or some, you know, something mm-hmm. very specific, technical problem. But, you know, I think that because Sam was on the set, particularly on a movie like The Graduate, where the setups are so powerful and visual and innovative, to have a great cinematographer, a great editor, and Nichols, of course, brought his own greatness, which was performance and words, but to have all these elements combined and all these great heads working together, I think they just revolutionized the best of filmmaking. You know, mm-hmm. I think there was, a, there was some influence from European films. There was the widescreen had just come about. So they were very much into composition within the frame, foreground, background action. That was very much a part of The Graduate, particularly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually that style sort of shifted because there was a period when Sam was holding for a long time on certain shots. Mm-hmm. And it was all sort of, it wasn't cutty at all. It was, it was really sort of this display of almost theatrical. Um, carnal knowledge is very much like that, too. Yeah. And sometimes um, Catch-22, where there was a lot of attention paid to laying out shots and composition, composing these beautiful shots. And as I said, because Sam was there, they went together so magnificently. Although his most famous cut, he was really surprised it worked. And that was the one where um, Benjamin is um, jumping on top of Mrs. Robinson, and then he's on top of the, the float in the pool, the cut, that cut. He was really nervous about the cut. And, and the only reason why they did it that way is because they couldn't go underwater. So it violated every rule. 
to um, there was no no dramatic change in angle, and it should have been very disorienting, but it wasn't. And that's one of those examples where you just get lucky. But it wasn't all luck. I mean, I'm sure the timing of how he did it had a lot to do with it. But you know, just you can imagine if if all those heads are together creating something, what you can come up with. It was just this glor- these glory days of everybody having as much money and time as they wanted <laughs> and Nichols having the power to hire the best people. And, you know, it's sort of serendipitous, really, mm-hmm. when things like that happen. Listening to, like, an actor's rhythms or a character's rhythms within the story is always important when cutting. Uh, what were some of Sam's techniques for doing this? For the actor's rhythm? Yeah. I just think that, you know, the editor is always audience, and I think he would respect an actor's performance and not try if if there was a timing thing with the actor, he would let it play out. You know, for example, in the graduate, that scene in the den, mm-hmm. this is a perfect example of letting an actors seeing what works and making the most of it. And th- there are two, actually two examples of that in the den, Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to seduce me? There's this great shot where he had a lot of options, but he let, Dustin Hoffman just sit very uncomfortably in the chair when she puts on that music. Mm-hmm. He could have cut away, but he knew that the way his performance was so wonderful that he just let him hang himself out. And that's an example of trusting an actor's rhythm and performance. Um, and, and then the other one is when Mrs. Robinson traps him in the bedroom and she's mm-hmm. naked and she proposes this affair and that was a complete um, recut. The original ver- way they were going to do it was very different. But the whole focus was on his panic. He can't look at her. He can't look away. It was hilarious. And mm-hmm. why cut to Mrs. Robinson when you have this performance? So I think a lot of what an editor's job is is to recognize those gems and to make the most of them. And then, of course, you can have the opposite situation and then you have to protect the actor's performance and cut away <laughs> yeah. when you have to, you know, but when, it, when, when the rhythms are really working and the performance is really working, you have to be able to recognize that and, and take a chance sometimes and go, go further with it than you, you would norm, traditionally do, you know. Now, when you were writing Cut to the Chase, were you ever worried that the information you revealed about particular studios, directors, was too per- personal or would get Sam in trouble? I think Sam was careful to be fair. Mm-hmm. He didn't say everything, believe it or not. Oh, okay. He, he actually, there were certain things, which I won't even say now, that, yeah. you know, that, so strangely enough, I think he wasn't, he wasn't, unfair he but he still had to be Sam Mm -hmm. and Sam is Sam was out there so he wasn't going to hold back on showing his salty personality but on the other hand you know I think he just for example when he was defending Ulu Grossbart when he was being treated so badly he just feels very strongly that that he wanted to say that you know Mm -hmm. and because he's such a good man. I don't think, but Sam was never, you know, he, he wasn't vengeful. In, his personality just wasn't like that. He didn't look back. Mm-hmm. So I think it wasn't a sour grapes. And if you notice, he doesn't really, there's a particular book, which I'm not going to mention, that came out by an editor that's 
always been called the sour grapes book because mm-hmm. it's like I look what I did. Yeah. And, you know. So I think he he had a certain arrogance, but it wasn't uh, at the expense of other people. It was just sort of honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't I, know if it's arrogant or just confident. You know? well, I think it's but, also at the end he, you got the sense that like like he always said, it's just shadows on the wall. You know, it's just it's a film at the end of the day. And we can all yeah. sort of laugh at what we've done and the stories. But, you know, also, I think it's a function of how confident you are as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like any creative field. We all have our doubts. But if you have some sort of faith in yourself, you don't need to over-aggrandize your role. And uh, I think that came through in that book. You went into screenwriting after a bit of uh, editing. How do you think editing influenced your screenwriting and vice versa, how screenwriting has sort of influenced your outlook on editing and the writing of these books? Well, I think that transitions. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, I'm very aware of the significance of them. And, you know, I think anybody who wants to do anything in film really should spend time in a cutting room. Mm-hmm. because all the mistakes are felt. So you, it, you're you the last screenwriter, really, mm-hmm. because the screenplay is just a blueprint, and then you have to rewrite it. So all the structural things that you experience where you, you, you take this doesn't work and that whole critical thinking of the arcs in a scene or the arcs in a movie, you know, that you have to build up and, and, and start over again, you... You have to have peaks and valleys, and you Mm -hmm. have to also always be conscious of what the audience is feeling, what they want, what they're thinking, and make sure they get what they want. And you don't Mm -hmm. want to confuse them. You don't want to, you know, the endings are brutal. Endings Mm -hmm. are so difficult because you don't, you want them to get what they want, but you don't want them, you don't want it to be obvious. Yeah. One thing I've always known and Sam used to talk about that too if someone starts shooting a movie and they haven't figured out the ending mm-hmm. they will never figure out the ending I mean it'll never be a great ending yeah it's and you mentioned so difficult you know and you mentioned that in in a few interviews that you can't save a film in post it's either gonna work or it's not yeah I mean what you can do is you can take a movie that's the footage is not terrible, but mm-hmm. there's something there, and you can make it into a, maybe a mediocre movie, but you can't take terrible film and make it into a decent movie. And I think also, I think Sam said this too, you can also screw up a movie in the cutting room, <laughs> but you can't save a movie in the yeah. cutting room. You can only get make the best out of what you have. And, you know, as I said, that's, that's the, the challenge. When you started writing The Invisible Cut, how did your work on Cut to the Chase influence the writing of your second book, The Invisible Cut? Oh, because basically I figured out that I could explain editing by mm-hmm. having Sam talk about his process. And I feel that I can straddle both worlds because I'm a writer and an editor. And mm-hmm. most people are one or the other. And I think it's, it is a very, not to do my own horn, but I'm just saying it's, it's a very difficult thing to talk about editing. First of all, nobody knows what an editor does. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Even the director doesn't know because they, what they think they shot may not be exactly what they shot. A fellow editor wouldn't know because nobody knows the quality of the film they had to work with, how much control they had over, over the cut. And 
just every editor has a completely different process. Mm-hmm. And it's all about who they are. I mean, they still, their goals are the same, but how they get there is not. And it's such a crucial role on the movie-making team, and it's so invisible. So because I was able to get Sam to explain his process, and, you know, I, I know there was a lot of gossip and stories, but there was also a lot of specific parts that were about cutting. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I can do this, I'm going to take classic movie scenes and use interviews again. That was Carol Littleton. But also, because some of these movies, the, she was the only one that was alive of all mm-hmm. the editors, I also used background um, research and tried to just get as much information as I could, sort of the way I did with Sam, like the background of the circumstances of shooting the movie, what the film was like, what the editor was like, you know, all those Mm -hmm. things that inform the process. And it's just, and the frame grabs, I use frame grabs to show the actual cuts because if you have a visual hook, it's so much better. Mm -hmm. Frame grabs have limitations because you can't actively see the flow, but it is a way to hook into talking about the choices that the editor made. Mm -hmm. And um, with Carol, for example, I had already picked the frame grabs. So I sat her down and said, so tell me about how you cut the sequence. And then that story about body heat, I didn't know she was going to tell me this crazy story about the Steadicam problem and how she completely recreated this scene to be fantastic much better than it would have been if they hadn't had the problem. You know, so it, so it, it was a way to engage her in a conversation that's very specific because mm-hmm. I want to talk about the cuts. And like for what I'm doing on um, February 23rd with Tim Squires, we're going to run Gosford Park and we're going to do something that's sort of the next step, which I'm I'm planning on doing more of, which is having the editor actually run sequences and then go back first just run the sequence say look at this isn't this a nice thing blah blah blah. it really works and then go back Mm -hmm. and slow motion go over the cuts and explain the choices he made how he tricked you maybe and see this doesn't match or Mm -hmm. see my challenges here and and i got a lot of information about gosford park and how unique the director's process was there. So you have to get all that information. The director has, every director has a different process. Every editor has a different process. Every movie has different problems and challenges. And I, my intent is to be sort of a film editing historian and sort of gather all these things and get into the minds of the editor and, and have them explain their process, the master editors and, it's the only way you're going to really learn what they did, you mm-hmm. know? Now, you, you touched on many things there. Um, in one in particular is the history, just at the end there. It seems to be that there's like a, a growing interest in film editing history. How do you see films, film editing's history influencing young digital film editors? And what should editors look for when they're looking at older films? Well, it's interesting because I was just listening to an interview with Selma Schumacher, Mm. who's Martin Scorsese's editor. (laughs) And I think this is amazing. They, in the cutting room, 
they have a screen that's up all the time, sort of off in the corner, of Turner movie classics that run mm-hmm. without sound all day long. Oh, wow. Isn't that, isn't that great? And it's sort of like, and then people won't look at it, and sometimes he'll say, see that cut? Look at that cut over there. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. And he is a very, he, he talked about this as the Golden Globes. He's, he's very much, his mission is to film preservation and really, I think any era is interesting. I mean, French New Wave is very was a really big deal for editors. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a very avant-garde period. Um, Godard and Truffaut, and I think editors, aspiring editors, and editors should watch those movies. But I think really all the classics, whether it's D.W. Griffith, who really revolutionized movie making, Hitchcock movies mm-hmm. are really interesting. But European movies, Japanese movies, Kurosawa's movies. I I mean, uh, all master editors will say, you know, watch as many movies as you can mm-hmm. because you'll just, it's, it's, first of all, editors who've done a lot of films, they say they use their cuts for, they, they, they you know, the experience they have from cutting one movie will, will help them with other movies, but they also say looking at other cuts, just saying, oh, look what he just did there. That was, you know, it, it's, it's not... It's not something that you can specifically, it's a sort of a cumulative thing that you, it'll go into your subconscious and you'll just know that it's, that, you know, you'll have this, this awareness mm-hmm. so that when you're presented with your own choices, you might tap into that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's just so many movies to watch, but really, and of course, all Sam Osteen's movies. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think the seventies, oh seriously, I think mm-hmm. I think Bonnie and Clyde, you know, Dee Dee Allen's Bonnie and Clyde, that's a movie you have to see if you're an editor. You know, there's certain iconic movies from the late sixties and the early seventies. It was a very powerful time for movie making and editing in general. The el- editor was elevated to more of an artist status and I don't think it was an accident. I think it's because they were given the freedom um, along with the director to really play out their artistic sensibilities. And I think that Sam was lucky to have been in that era, you know. So watch those movies that where they really had a lot of freedom and they could they weren't, you know, before the blockbuster era where <laughs> there was more pressure to mm-hmm. kind of reach a mass audience. Well, that was part two of my interview with Bobby Osteen. Join me next week for part three. I'd like to thank Bobby Osteen, Carol Eisner for setting up the interview, and my producer Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.